Thanks, Chris. Uh, let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, we give you thanks again for your word, and we pray that as we come to it, you would be with us, help us to understand what you are saying, and uh, live out uh, what you tell us uh, in the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it's great to be with you again as we uh, pick up the second of a mini-series on Luke 24. So a couple of weeks ago, you might remember, we looked at Luke 1, sorry, chapter 24, verses 1 to 35. And we thought about how Jesus' resurrection means that we're no longer enslaved to sin and death, but have the real hope of eternal life. Now today, and especially coming right off the back of Mission Awareness Week, uh, we're going to look at the last part of Luke 24, where Jesus challenges us not to keep our hope to ourselves, but be passionate in offering it to those around us and around the world who, like us, desperately need him. And so in many ways, it's a very simple challenge, uh, but you know as well as I do, it is a huge one and one we need to keep having set before our hearts as our true north for life. Uh, I think especially in our current context where even today in our chapel service, things are so disrupted and destabilised, um, you can just swirl around, can't you? And, and it's hard to stay focused and energised on looking outwards towards what really matters. So let's get into it. And I have three points from the passage, and they are this. Because of the resurrection, we serve Jesus, comforted by his flesh and blood. Okay, comforted by his flesh and blood, verses 36 to 43. We serve Jesus, driven by his love for the lost, verses 44 to 49. Driven by his love for the lost. And we serve Jesus, blessed by his ascension to heaven's throne. Verses 50 to 53. A little bit cryptic, but we'll unfold it as we go. So first, we serve Jesus comforted by his flesh and blood. Verses 36 to 43. So the passage starts in verse 36 off the back of Jesus' uh, Emmaus Road narrative. And I think this part of the narrative is so familiar to us that we can actually overlook just how supernaturally weird the whole thing is as Jesus has begun to reveal himself in different ways to pockets of his disciples, but now they're all together. And the other Gospels tell us they're in a locked room talking about all these individual bewildering experiences, and suddenly Jesus is there. It's like he's, you know, Harry Potter apparated in the middle of Hogwarts, which shouldn't be able to happen. He's standing right there in the middle of them. And I always think he's got to know exactly what he's doing. I think he's got to have this huge grin on his face when he just pops up and says, peace be with you. Um, there's a YouTube video that I really love, and if you Google man scares wife since 2014, right, it's just a series of clips of a dude sneaking up on his wife and seeing her reaction. I think that's a little bit like what Jesus was doing. <laughs> just want to see what happens. <laughs> so in verse 37, they in fact freak out and think he's a ghost. Which, incidentally, I reckon shows that they had as much trouble as we would with the idea of the dead coming back to life. But Jesus has to go out of his way to show them that he is real and bodily. Verse 38, he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. 
Now again, I think we're just so used to reading this account, we sometimes miss how mind-blowing this really is. Um, and so in preparation for this morning, I actually had a chat yesterday to both Andrew Leslie and Pete Orr about some of the things going on here. Let me read some of the notes I took from the conversations, and I assure you, everything that sounds intelligent is from them. <laughs> okay, here, here we go. That his appearance here is so startling that they think he's a ghost may indicate his glorious resurrection body shining like at the transfiguration. But then his very normal appearance on the Emmaus Road makes this issue complex. But at the least, it indicates some sort of ability to modify his appearance at will and pass through solid walls. Is Jesus eating fish only an act of accommodation for the disciples' sake to prove his flesh and blood, or does his resurrection body still actually need food? Uh, O'Donovan says the resurrection is God's radical affirmation of created goodness and God's necessary vindication that sin has never thwarted his purpose. But it also looks forward to something radically new beyond that in the eschatological glorified body. So then what does the resurrection body imply for the care of our pre-resurrection bodies? Where is the continuity and discontinuity between the two types of bodies and their experience? And how does Luke 24, with its strong continuity between them, relate to 1 Corinthians 15, where the discontinuity seems so absolute? And then finally, my favourite, that Jesus' resurrection body retains his wounds raised a lot of issues for classical thinkers. They discussed at length things like would those who lost limbs be raised with or without them? How old would our resurrection bodies be? 25? And it also raises the relationship, which is an actual answer that Augustine gave. Um, and it also raises the relationship between divine and created substances, culminating in classic questions like how many angels can dance on a pinhead? And could God have come to earth as a cucumber? That was my contribution. <laughs> but that was just the first few minutes of about a 20-minute conversation that just ranged over all these topics. What does a resurrection body actually look like and feel like? And it's mind-blowing, isn't it? And very important doctrinally. But actually, I just want to draw one pastoral observation from the passage that struck me as I was looking through, and that is how Jesus used his physical resurrected body, whatever it was like, for the physical care and fellowship of his disciples to calm their fears. As he invites them to see and touch the wounds by which he saved them. And especially as he chose for the decisive demonstration of his physicality, you know, the most foundational and welcoming act of fellowship possible. He ate with them. And in fact, uh, there's an article, I think, arguing that uh, Luke's gospel is entirely constructed around Jesus either going to a meal or leaving from a meal, and that's pretty much all Luke is. I think Luke may have been part Asian. But it's quite beautiful, isn't it, that the resurrected, glorious Jesus uses his resurrected, glorious body for physical care and fellowship of his followers. And so I think the implication for us is, however deep we want to get into the doctrines and metaphysics, and I hope you do, the bottom line is Jesus used his body to comfort and connect with his disciples in the most immediate and tangible way to draw them from fear into fellowship. 
And I think that's so powerful in terms of how we then should think about our ministry. Uh, and I think our great strength as reformed evangelicals, which is theological and systematic accuracy, can also be sometimes our great weakness. What I mean is that sometimes we can think that if we just pump people full of the right theology, job done. That's all they need. In fact, if we get too experiential, you know, too emotionally engaged or involved in things like uh, social care and justice, we'll inevitably go off the rails. But that is not at all true. Sometimes, yes, we need to emphasize the fact that gospel is a message and God reveals himself to us by his word. But when that very word says, 1 John, this is how we know what love is, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Right, we can't ultimately separate our teaching of someone from our bodily actions towards them without utterly compromising everything we say. I remember um, uh, being part of a, criti a critique of someone in ministry and uh, one of the people who was critiquing said something I thought very insightful uh, because they observed them and they said, look, your people, right, I know they are loved by you because of everything you do for them and your teaching and everything, but I don't think they feel loved by you because of the way you relate to them. I thought it was such a perceptive critique and such a really helpful uh, analysis of my own ministry and a, a really good tool uh, just to think about. Do my people actually feel physically loved by me? Do my actions, my bodily service match my teaching, my word service so that the love of the Lord Jesus for them is made real? It's a great challenge, isn't it? So that's the first point. Uh, second point that shapes our ministry is that we serve Jesus driven to the ends of the earth by his love for the lost, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I just want to point out three things here, sorry. I want to point out here that in God's plan, there are three non-negotiable elements. Two have been fulfilled, and one is yet to be at this point. What are they? Number one, verse 46, that Jesus suffered and died to pay for the sins of the world. Number two, verse 46, that he was raised to life to conquer sin and death. And verse 47, that his message of repentance and forgiveness go to all the world. And so I think it's worth pointing out, and thank God, more here by way of reminder than rebuke, that world evangelization is as much a central part of God's plan as Jesus' death and resurrection. And notice also it doesn't say, wait for people to come to us. Right? There is a place for the attractional model, yes, but our main direction and intent has always got to be outwards. The gospel is to go to all nations. 
And I think that's an especially practical challenge if you are in an established denomination, for example, Sydney Anglicanism. And so let me say, as part of the furniture here, right, having a strong, stable fellowship and all the resources of Sydney Anglicanism at your fingertips is actually a great support in sustaining service of God. But it is always a temptation, isn't it, to let them become a safety blanket of comfort that can blunt our evangelistic and missionary edge. And so we've always got to make sure we're looking to take the gospel outside our current boundaries, outside our buildings, outside our gatherings, and looking to give and send, not just retain and hold, because it's not our kingdom that we want to grow. It's God's, isn't it? Uh, there is a ministry around the traps that many of our number here this morning have benefited from, whose, um, I think, uh, you know, apocryphal slogan, uh, but I think it's real, uh, I actually love. And here's the slogan. We are the church that gets rid of its members. That's a great slogan. What they mean by that, of course, is they bring people in, they train them up, and then they send them out so that more and more people can hear about Jesus. Um, And I've got to say, one of the things that does concern me at the moment is the number of movements in our circles that are arising that I just get the sense have this real desire to retain their people for as long as they can and keep and hold them in and grow their kingdom over God's kingdom. But wouldn't it be wonderful if all our ministries and denominations had that attitude that we want to get rid of our members so that more and more people around the world can hear the gospel of Jesus. Uh, second area of challenge on this that I was thinking about is how good was last week? How good was Mission Awareness Week? Uh, I really loved hearing from the missionaries uh, that I got to working in other countries and cultures, particularly uh, the ones that visited my chaplaincy group. In fact, uh, this lunchtime, I'm going to meet up with them again and we're going to keep talking about their ministry overseas. Very, very exciting. Um, so helpful and so challenging. And the three things that uh, Mission Awareness brought home to me were, number one, just how immense the needs are across the world. Number two, how entrenched I am in my culture and its expressions and emphases of the gospel. And number three, most confrontingly, how much I really love the comfort and security of being in Australia. But I was uh, chatting to Simon Gillum yesterday, and we were saying how great it would be if for many of us here in this room, it was more than just Mission Awareness Week. How about if for you it became Mission Engagement Week or even Mission Enlistment Week? And so I want to challenge you, if that's you, if you found last week that sense of God's call on you to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet, Don't just sit on it, right? Think, pray, talk, but act, right? Let Jesus' love for the lost drive you to the ends of the earth. That's the second thing that Luke 24 challenges us with. And then the third point that shapes our ministry from this chapter is that we serve Jesus, blessed by his ascension to heaven's throne, Uh, verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. 
Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Uh, One of the striking things about Luke's writing across both Luke and Acts is how masterfully he has constructed it. And I found a really helpful reflection on just this, uh, which I'm going to paraphrase for you. And basically, the writer said this. Typical of a great work of literature is that the beginning and the end are constructed to fit together harmoniously. The conclusion brings things full circle, reminding us where things began, while at the same time showing how much progress has been made, completing one arc, but at the same time beginning the next. Luke may have had a historian's love for facts, but he also had a poet's love for style. So his gospel begins at the temple in Jerusalem, the place where people met uh, with God. Zechariah the priest was in the holy place, offering incense, but he encountered God in a way that evoked bewilderment and fear. And then shortly after, Luke records the story of the first Christmas, the coming of the Son of God. His gospel ends back at the temple again, with the disciples encountering the risen Christ in a way that evokes bewilderment and fear, but that wonderfully gives way to joy and praise as the salvation that was only anticipated at the beginning is fully revealed in the resurrection. And like the beginning of the gospel recorded the coming or advent of Jesus, Luke ends his gospel with the going or ascension of Jesus as he returns to take his heavenly throne. But as he leaves, he blesses his disciples, which is both the closing act of his own mission as well as the inauguration of theirs. Israel, restored by Jesus in Luke, is now sent to bring the light of their saviour to the ends of the earth in Acts. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? But even better is that it's not just great literature. It is God's magnificent unfolding of how Jesus didn't just die for us and rise for us in the past and will return for us in the future. The point of finishing with the ascension is to make uh, clear to us that each and every day now, he watches over you, protects you, and make sure that nothing can ever snatch you from his care as you seek to serve him in the world. Uh, One of my kids once uh, wanted to do a balance beam course, but he wasn't very confident about it. And so what helped him to get up for it was actually me doing it first, right? Showing him where to step and everything, and then hopping off and then coming back around to walk beside him as he did it, hands at the ready to catch him in case he fell. And theologically, I think that's a little bit like the importance of Jesus' ascension, or technically his heavenly session. Uh, What Luke finishes with is the fact that the Lord Jesus has not left us alone in the challenges and strains of our service for him. He walked the path before us so we know where to step, and he walks with us now by his spirit, hands at the ready, to carry us to the safety of eternity, no matter how hard what we face for him here on earth is. And so, brothers and sisters, as Luke finishes, is Jesus not worth worshipping with great joy? Uh, Let me finish up. 
because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we serve and worship him. Right? We serve comforted by his flesh and blood and offering that comfort to others in our own bodies. We serve driven by his love for the lost outside our comfort zone and boundaries to the ends of the earth. And we serve blessed by his ascension to heaven's throne knowing we are safe in his hands till he returns and calls us home with him for eternity. So the challenge from Luke 24 is, will you then serve him with all your life? Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for this remarkable, stirring, comforting, encouraging, challenging word. We thank you for the path our Lord Jesus trod for us through death to resurrection. And we thank you that even in his resurrected glory, he is tender and compassionate and loving with us and serves us with his body. And so may we give our bodies and hearts and souls in his service as we seek to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Strengthen us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.